Welcome to Afterthoughts, a podcast from the pastors here at Christ Fellowship Cherrydale, a church in Greenville, South Carolina. My name's Hugh, and we're going to spend some time looking at Luke 7. But before we do, let's talk a little shop. We've got Walker Caps here with us this morning and Miles Moon. So, Walker, let me uh, push to you first. A couple questions about... Um, how you do your job. Um, first basic question, how do you pick songs for Sunday? Do you have a fishbowl on your desk and you slips of paper, uh, song on each slip, and you just kind of pull out five? Wow. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> how do you pick songs? So I've, um, we, we have the sermons planned out in advanced. In advanced? How... How that's probably a question for you. Back to you. They're very advanced sermons. Yeah. How uh, how in advance is the sermon schedule planned out? All right. So we're we're gonna be winding down with this season of Luke here pretty soon, and then we're gonna make a fo- we're gonna have a focus on mission and evangelism in the fall. That sermon series is is not planned out with the brass tacks at this point but if we rewound the clock six eight months we had every passage in Luke already broken down so when we're on our game we're probably six months out mm. so I've got that list of uh, passages and sermon titles on a Google Doc that we all share and I go through and I um, look at the passage for that week and I see what themes are in the passage and then trying to do a better job of talking with the preaching pastor to see, hey, um, if, if there's any theme that you're going to end on so I can maybe pick a song at the end that would really reflect that theme. Like, let's talk about that a little bit. So looking through the overarching theme, if there's like a big theme, like this past Sunday was uh, forgiveness of sin or um so we sung His Mercy is More at the End, and Hugh had asked to do that because he thought that would be a great song to do. So His Mercy is More at the End, and then the last song is usually trying like a mission song or Because We Are Forgiven Now, we did um, Praise the King. So it's almost like a, a celebration song that we end on. But uh, to kind of just a little bit more, I've, we've got a, a, a song bank of about 45 songs right now that w- the church knows that uh, I'm trying to add to. I would like to have 50 songs that I'm picking from in a year that I'm rotating through. Some songs like um, like In Christ Alone, His Mercy is More, um, maybe do those once a month, and then introducing new things. But I've got that, that bank of 50 songs on my desk. So as I'm planning, I'm looking at themes. I'm looking at what we've sung in the past, not to do things too much then also what fits in, in our loose liturgy of uh, singing songs of praise, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, um, a response to the sermon, then a mission song sending out. Okay, that was going to be my next my next question. Is there an intentional ordering of, of those songs and, and those different um, kinds of, uh, I guess, feel of the song if it's, more somber kind of contemplating our own sin or it's exultant in uh, celebrating our forgiveness. How do yeah. you think through that in ordering the service? Yeah, so there's there's a 
like I said, a loose liturgy, and this is something that is across a bunch of different churches, but we kind of tailored it to us as well. But the, the first song would be a praise and adoration song, starting with a big view of God as we come into the service. Like God is is big. We've had we've all come in from different walks, but God is majestic. He's holy. We come in to praise Him. That's the first thought, and then we have the announcement block. We're trying to be. We're doing intentional. We're doing scripture reading there, but then that kind of calls us into a time of need, a time of confession after we do the meet and greet, and that'll be um, that'll be all I have is Christ, or um, my worth is not in what I own, like a, a confession and need. And then that draws us into a thanksgiving that we have, we see our need for Christ, and then we say thank you for your death on the cross, thanksgiving for, for our pardon for sin. And then that will lead us into the sermon, and then, like I said before, response to the sermon after the, song, after the sermon, and then a ascending song or a, a, uh, a praise song to kind of uh, okay. as we leave. All right, that's good. What are you looking for? It, you know, you've got 40-something songs and you want to get up to 50. And I'm sure you listen to dozens of different songs a week. Right. What makes a good song versus a bad song? What What are you, what are the key elements that you're looking for to determine, is this a song that we are going to sing at Cherrydale? Yeah, I feel like we have a certain flavor that we like. I remember when when uh, I was like first interviewing for the job, I asked, I think it was Brandon, like, what songs does Cherry Dale like to sing? And he, he referenced, like, story songs, like In Christ Alone, something with some some thick message, but it kind of goes through the storyline of the gospel. And um, But also, with that, we also, love, we also like um, praise songs that we can sing loud, that we can have um, a good response to. So, like, Praise the King, I feel like it's good. Yes and amen, yes and amen. The church loves like every time we sing that it is so loud. Um, so there's a in between of like then Christ alone kind of songs that have a storyline. Um, Come behold the wondrous mystery. Um, trying to think um, something I intentionally I picked. Um, um, I'm blanking on the on the name of the song. It'll, it'll come to me in a second. That's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. But also, the, whole, the context is the Colossians 3.16, singing psalms, hymns, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a, a mixture of different kind of songs that, that we kind of sing. And I think about it, I won't go too deep in what I, what I, how I go through it, but I think it kind of about a, a, like a diet. Like the meaty songs, we don't want to just sing a bunch of meaty songs because then we lend to the head of the church and just have a bunch of thinkers and no feelers. But then we don't want to have just light songs, like kind of fluffy and talking about maybe one attribute of God because that kind of limits our view of who God really is. So a combination of thick doctrine, but also maybe songs that have maybe one attribute, maybe thinking about his love, or you never change, the song we're singing right now, thinking about how he is, he is never changing since the beginning of time. So kind of giving us an in-between of thick doctrine, but also things that we can kind of sing with a really... Um, with a lot of passion, but also maybe just thinking of one one aspect of his character. Okay, uh, obviously, like a lot of the the way you answered that question was surrounding the content of the song, as in the lyrics. Is, is there anything else that you're looking for? Like, I mean, I'm not a music guy, right? So, like, um, 
it's easy. It's I, I can evaluate lyrics. Right. You know, this is good. This is bad. Music is another thing. Like I right. don't. What What are you looking for there? What are you looking for? Like some songs are more um, designed for performance. Sure. Other songs are designed for s- corporate singing. So, yeah. what are yeah, you? Yeah, singability for? is a big one. So, a melody that is easily catchable that can uh, that can get stuck in your head. You don't want to have a song that is so complex that. You're you're halfway through it and nobody knows where the song's going. Yeah, I've been to services like that. Yeah, so um, picking a song that that I enjoy singing is kind of a a, a test that is easy for me to catch on. And uh, if it's something that's just really hard to sing, singability is, is the biggest thing. You know, we come together. The biggest goal is that we can sing together. If you if you're not able to sing the song, if it's if it's great content, really deep theology. Um, amazing but then it's hard for the church to sing it's it's a miss okay that's good all right let's bounce over to miles you came on staff i guess six or eight weeks ago and the lull of summer is decidedly over now college students are back youth ministries up and running so those are a couple of big areas in the church that's uh that's on your plate before we uh, get into like what are you gonna what 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 is it that we can look forward to in the fall in those areas? Why is it important in your estimation that youth ministry is not happening on its own island? College ministries happening on its own island? Why is it important that that those ministries are really central in line with the rest of the church? Yeah, I think that um, you know the youth group is not a church college group is not a church and so the you know students that are in the youth need the church and the church also needs the youth and so if they were separate and you know youth were just a silo ministry kind of functioning as its own church then the members of the body to use the new testament you know metaphor the members of the body are missing and not connected to the rest of the body and the body also suffers um, because you know if, if if with the body your your big toe is is separated um, and then you stumble, you fall. So I think the rest of the church needs the uh, the members of the youth. And then also, you know, if I'm a if I'm a college student and I go to college group, I mean, we're going to do a lot of things that the church does. We're going to read scripture. We're going to pray. We're going to worship together, even share meals together. But I'm not a pastor. Um, the college volunteers are not pastors, and so the college students need the wisdom and the guidance and the direction of pastors, and need to be connected to larger body if they're going to function um, as healthy disciples with the guidance of the New Testament and what the church is. Okay, that's good. So why don't you give us um, kind of a, you know, 30, 60 second promo. What are, what are you looking to see happen in, in youth and in college this fall? Yeah, so with, I'll start with youth um, and kind of obvious answer, but the focus of everything we do is never assuming that a student is is born again, never assuming that a student's saved. So, you know, even the pastor's kids that are in the group, um, not not assuming that a student's especially, especially Especially those yeah, Carson kids, that's, that's right, right, yeah. So, yeah, just, you know, where, where we start is if we're teaching, you know, Ruth chapter 4, or if we're teaching Acts chapter 1, the gospel central, and the goal is to see students saved, to see them turn from their sin, and believe the gospel for the forgiveness of their sins. And so that's that's goal one. Once they are saved, and for the students who already are, man, we want to see them sanctified. 
You know, we want to teach them spiritual disciplines so that they will not, you know, drift away from holiness, but so that by grace-driven effort, they will become more Christ-like. Um, and so with college, it's, it's the same thing. I think college is a little different in that, you know, a 20-year-old can understand things a little with a little more depth than, you know, the 11 or 12-year-old in the youth group. So with, with the youth, you know, the teaching, we want nothing to be over the head of the youngest student in the room, but we also want the oldest students in the room, and even, even the adult volunteers or a parent who sits in to learn. And so it's kind of a little more difficult in that setting. Uh, but with college, it's, it's the same thing. You know, students from North Greenville don't want to assume they're saved just because they're a student at a Baptist university. So, so making sure that, that each student is, is in Christ is kind of block one. And then once that's there for the students who, who do belong to Christ, we want to teach spiritual disciplines and we want to practice them. So we're going we're gonna to actually go and learn how to evangelize. We're going to get them outside of the kind of Christian bubble that they may have grown up in. And then, you know, they go to Christian school and there aren't a whole lot of non-believers around. So we're going to get them kind of outside that and, and actually practice the spiritual discipline so that, you know, when they're out of college and they go work in an office with a bunch of non-believers, they know how to interact with non-believers in a way that glorifies the Lord. And with youth, by the time they graduate high school and kind of leave the nest of parents and youth pastors kind of always being there, they have a good foundation for the rest of their life to kind of grow on. All right. Excellent. Well, let's talk Luke 7 for a couple minutes. Our passage from Sunday was uh, verses 36 through 50, where Luke records an interaction. Jesus gets invited into the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And uh, I guess in this in this culture here, when Big Wig is in town and it's just free reign, you can go check in, you can drop in and just see what's going on. So it's not just Simon and Jesus, but there's a whole other crowd of onlookers. And then we've got um, a woman of notorious, scandalous sin and church history tradition has held that that she's an adulterer, that she's guilty of sexual sin and um, and what a what an, a fascinating encounter that that Jesus has with the Pharisee and then turns to the woman so um, you know 30,000 foot view in in all the Gospels what is it like what what is Jesus's interaction with Pharisees like yeah I think that you know, you would expect Jesus' interaction with religious leaders to be pleasant. You know, they're the ones who know the scriptures well. And yet, I think because of their arrogance, because of their pride, Jesus' main interaction, type of interaction with the Pharisees is kind of an intentional humbling. I think he shows them that you, you know yeah. the scriptures, but do you really understand the scriptures? Has the knowledge in your head really percolated into your heart and and led you to approach the Savior humbly, and we see time and time again that that is not the case with them. Mm-hmm. What is it about somebody's arrogance, somebody's pride, that just feels so off-putting? Like, what, what's the deal with that? Yeah, well, I was, I was thinking about the, um, the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple, and where the Pharisee is just, look what I do, I've, I've give of what I have and I pray and I do all these things and he's like praying out loud in the temple and then you've got the tax collector in the corner 
beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me. And that, it's just the heart is completely not connected to the brain. It's just, it, it's repulsing because he's boasting in what he's doing, all these things that he's doing, but the guy in the corner really has it figured out. And God says, this, this man in the corner goes away justified, not, not the man who's praying out loud. That passage is really something. It's almost like a cartoon. You know, it's this caricature of um, if you allow pride to take root, that that is the ultimate destination. And it's one of these things that, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to say um, that other people do and that I, I would never do, but it's that's the sort of thing like, um, I, I would never say it out loud, but functionally we all will succumb to prideful thoughts. Like we, we all will battle with arrogance in, in different ways and at different times. So, um, any, any insight into, um, warning signs, um, when you might have a seed or a root of, pride of arrogance starting to to take root in you yeah I think for me you know if I catch myself um, and this is qualitative more than quantitative it's tough to measure but I try to regularly check my heart if I catch myself performing acts of righteousness for people in the room rather than those things being an act between me and God so example prayer in a group you know if when I'm praying I'm really speaking to the Lord and my focus is on the Lord, then I think that's a good thing. If my focus is, man, I've got to find the right words so that the people around me think that I'm really smart or they think that I know Bible really well, I think that that's clearly self-righteousness. I think I've got to step back and check myself and realize that, man, if I am, if I, re- if I really understand the gospel, if I really believe that I'm hopelessly sinful before a holy, perfect God, and I've got no shot at redemption except to submit myself to the one who really was perfect, then and, and I've been saved by grace and grace alone, and there's no merit in me that should have caused God to choose me. There's no room for self-righteousness. And so I think a, a check for me is, am I, am I performing my acts of righteousness before men? Am I doing this thing or saying this thing to be seen, to be heard, to be respected? Or um, am I doing this thing or saying this thing for the glory of the Lord? You know, am, I, am I a glory seeker or am I a glory giver? That's kind of a regular check-in that I try to have internally. Yeah, in the one, you're you're. It's an act of worship to the Lord, trying to give Him honor. In the other, it's an act of worship for yourself, trying to receive that honor. And so, man, that's so tricky those those motivations because um, who who knows motivations? Only only you and the Lord, and not always you. <laughs> you know, you don't. Uh, you're not always able to be. Uh, aware and mindful of those things. Um, yeah. So, um, all right, let's, let's think through Jesus's interaction, um, with the woman. Uh, when I, when I was preparing and reading, you know, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that he only says to the, he says to Simon a lot about the woman, but in speaking to the woman, the only words that, that he says to her is, um, let's see if I can get find it again. Verse 48, your sins are forgiven. And then verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Now, I made the claim that um, she showed up to the house forgiven that day. Now, you guys may or may not um, have the same, same conviction. What I see there is that there's one of two ways to interpret this, this passage, that um, she shows up, she shows this extravagant love and, um, and over-the-top honor, weeping at his feet, washing his feet with her hair and, and tears, and then um, giving this uh, expensive perfume to, to anoint it. And then different translations will, will um, put verses 47 and 48 differently. 47 in the um, CSB, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And so there's, there's one way to interpret this as because you have loved much, therefore you are forgiven. And then immediately that, sh- that interpretation should like kind of get warning signs up for us. Like that, that, that doesn't square with, with what we understand. And so, so then the other option is that she loved much because she was first loved much in um, receiving forgiveness. So I think that is the, is the only possible interpretation here is that, and, and we don't know the story, right? Like we don't know, was she in the crowd somewhere hearing his teaching? Did, did she have some... Per- personal uh, one-on-one interaction with Jesus? Did did she just hear about him somehow? But it seems pretty clear to me that that she came, and, and I meant to bring this out in the sermon, but it's almost like the same event as the baptism that we celebrated during the service, right? So like we had one that was baptized. She came into the water already forgiven. She came into the water already redeemed, and that act is declaring to the church and the world, I'm forgiven and Jesus is my Lord. And this, this display of love that the sinful woman shows Jesus is, is kind of the, um, kind of the same thing. You, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, something, something we say, um, something I say when teaching the youth all the time, and every time I say it, I have them repeat it after me is context matters, um, or context is key. And so, Kind of zooming out a little bit and looking at the context of the rest of this passage, you know, I think you have to keep verse 42 in mind that when Jesus says, you know, a certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And so the forgiveness of the debt precedes the loving. The loving is a result, um, not the cause of the forgiveness. And so that's, that's zooming out a little bit and looking at, you know, the immediate context. We'll zoom out a little further and looking at the rest of the context of the New Testament. Makes me think of 1 John chapter 4, I believe, that, you know, we love because he first loved us. Yeah. So our loving is a result, I think a necessary result of God's loving. Our, our love is a result of forgiveness. Um, and then Jesus, you know, later at the very end of this passage in verse 50 says, um, he kind of indicates that it's not, it's not the fact that she loved that saved her, it's, it's her faith that saved her. And so another thing we talked about, um, we talked about this at beach camp, that 
faith, faith does not save you. Faith in hey, Christ saves you. Hey, Miles, I just want you to have faith in faith this right. morning, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah faith in faith, worthless. Um, so, yeah, we talked about, you know, how, how that's kind of a cultural concept, right? Oh, man, you just got to have faith. Um, but misdirected faith, misguided faith, um, kind of vague faith in, in everything and in nothing in particular doesn't save you any more than, you know, if, you, if you're on a plane and the pilot says, we just got to land, you know, you might be like, okay, yeah, that sounds right. But if he lands in the woods, you're going to die. Um, you can't just, as a pilot, say, I've got to land. You have to land on the runway. Like the landing has to be a specific kind of landing. Otherwise, it's landing is a really bad thing. You know, you wouldn't want a pilot to land in the middle of the ocean. The landing has got to be on the runway. And so our faith has to be on in the runway, on the runway of Jesus. Otherwise, it's not a saving kind of faith. And so ultimately, it's, it's her faith that saved her and... Um, that's a God-given gift, and love is the necessary result of that. Okay, so let, let's let's just double down on this idea. All right, so um, imagine uh, you're you're discussing this with some middle schoolers, and a, and a seventh grader says, "In some passages, in some sermons, we hear that we're saved by faith, and then other sermons, other passages, we're saved by Jesus." So how, how do you explain that? Yeah, I think I would, um, with a student, rather than just giving the answer, I think I would want them to search a little bit before I gave the answer. And so we would, we would go and look at other verses, other passages that do combine the two and say faith in Jesus, faith in Christ. Um, and then, you know, I would kind of try to, try to lead them to the conclusion themselves that um, when Scripture mentions faith, the idea that that faith is directed, that that faith is specifically in Jesus, is assumed. Um, so we would kind of start with the passages that have clarity, move to the passages of the verses that may not be quite as clear, and, and use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about grace, and then I want to um, circle back and apply that to this passage. So um, when, when you... When you see grace in the New Testament, how, how is it discussed? What, what does grace do? What is it? What effect does it have in the life of a believer? Yeah, grace is given to us, not by works, the Ephesians, Ephesians 2. So the whole thing of talking about uh, works and salvation Grace is given to us not because of what we've done to deserve it, but it's given just as a free gift to us. Okay. All right, so certainly this salvation that we're talking about that's in Christ alone, by faith alone, would fit in this category of of grace, right? Like it's, um, it's favor from God that is totally undeserved on our part, all right? So, Miles, when, when grace takes effect, like there's, there's genuine rebirth, what does grace then accomplish? Is there, is there a, like a, an effect on the life of the believer? Yeah, I mean, um, I think the, the purpose of this passage is passage is to highlight the necessary um, 
kind of the natural result of grace when it's received, and that's appreciation. You know, the sinful woman approaches Jesus and just goes to his feet and is cleaning his feet, and um, there are tears. And so you see a spirit of reverence and of awe. I mean, she recognizes that this is the Lord. This is the giver of grace. And so I think the, the inevitable result of grace when it's truly received is an appreciation that leads to obedience. Um, you know, if I recognize that one who's given me grace is the Lord of the universe who invented matter, you know, and, and gave me a heart and a mind and ability to think and feel, then there, there's got to be an appreciation that goes along with it if that grace has been genuinely received. Um, it makes me think of where Jesus says in John chapter 14, I think it's verse 15, you know, if you love me, you will obey what I command. So if, if, if you know me, if you love me, then the necessary result of that is obedience. So early I mentioned, earlier I mentioned when talking about spiritual disciplines, the concept of grace-driven effort, um, that we, we pursue Christ, we pursue holiness because we've been given grace. Grace is kind of the motivating factor behind um, all of our obedient acts when, when that obedience actually matters. Okay. What's, you know, what's really interesting again? Jesus, the sum total of, of the interaction he has with the woman. Your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What seems like a glaring omission in Jesus is he's talking to a notorious sinner who now it, it, it certainly seems clear that she's made new, that her faith is, is set on Jesus and that she has been saved. Why does he not say to the notorious sinner, go and sin no more, right? It there are other passages where where he he will give that instruction. I think the answer is grace. Like it's it's clear that she has received this grace. It's clear that 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 grace has done its work in her heart. And so it's not necessary, right? To 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 say it because what grace does is motivates us to obey. What grace does is it makes us want to put that sin off the way that we used to walk and it and it motivates us to honor the Lord. And if we find ourselves like in a Romans 6 kind of mindset where um well if I sin no big deal God God is God has grace for me so why not just sin all the more so that I get all the more grace? If we start thinking that way, then that's a big warning sign to, to show we don't understand grace, right? Like we've totally misappropriated it and, and we don't understand. Um, it takes a little bit of um, sanctified imagination to, to think what was life like for this woman after this? You know, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that that she was flawless, sinless in every way following this new birth. But I also don't think that she, like, returned to a life of sin dominated by the, the same sin that, that gave her the, the scarlet letter to begin with. So if, if we are biblical in our understanding that grace, that unmerited favor that you were talking about, Walker, um, that it... it really does something 
in in producing a new heart in us to um, to promote holiness and promote obedience. Is there a reason to hold back on grace in ministering with ministering to people in in the church, ministering to believers? Do we ever need to like give tough love? Does does that question make sense? I feel like my question is is muddy, and I I've, I I don't want to paint you into a corner. What I'm trying to say is like there there are some churches that that yeah you're saved by grace, but from here on you better mm-hmm. you better keep it up, mm-hmm. like and it's and it's on you, like you you've got to kind of prove to the Lord that He made a good investment mm-hmm. in, in you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so and in, in in churches like that, with that kind of mindset, they're they're not gonna they're not gonna talk a lot about grace. They're gonna kind of get to the other side where they're gonna preach the necessity of obedience, and they're right. But it but it really elevates performance mm-hmm. rather than God's grace. So I got my my question is: We don't want to end up in the in the legalistic kind of performance ditch is there a danger is there anything to look out for in in elevating grace i think i asked the question a bit a bit more clearly that time yeah i think if i'm understanding you right um maybe not quite as clear as i wanted <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you know hugh carson words um if i'm understanding you right i think you know we it would do us well to zoom out and make sure that we're not responding to sin. We're not responding to people's lives in a way that's not in line with how the father responds to sin and responds to um, the life of the believer. You know, if, if we understand the scriptures and the way they highlight the relationship of God as father and um, the grace of Jesus as our advocate, our intercessor, currently in the presence of the Father, we understand that our identity is you're a child of God, and we respond in a way that's similar to the way that God responds to our sin. I think that we avoid the hard line, um, you know, lacking grace, kind of being a jerk in response to sin. I mean, when you, it's kind of the concept of, you know, I heard Brian Chapel say one time at a conference, and I'm sure he didn't craft these words, but it's the first time I heard it, that the imperative is built on the indicative, so the commands in the Bible have to come from your identity, you know, the indicative who you are. And so if you if you are a child of God, then you will want to obey because God is Father, He's your loving Father, and you'll want to please your Father. And so I think that when we realize that God doesn't respond to our sin by going, man, I made a mistake choosing that one, but He responds to our sin with, I, I love that son or daughter of mine. Um, I really hate their behavior that's inconsistent with who they are now but I really love them. And I think if we mirror that response to sin in the life of a brother or a sister, then we're never going to lack grace because we're going to realize we can't have less grace than, than the Father has toward our sin. Um, we've got to avoid that ditch of having less grace than God has toward us. And I think that zooming out and realizing what Scripture says about God as Father and, and us as his children will help us to walk in step with that. Okay. All right. That's good. I like it. 
Yeah, I think um, we will be well served to to be very, very clear with biblical commands, to never water down the necessity and the importance of obedience. But the the leading step has to be grace. It it has to be, uh, as you said, I, I also heard uh, Brian Chapel talking about indicative and imperative. And, um, you know, the if I say to Bennett, you are my son, therefore act like my son. Act like someone that's that's loved and provided for and protected and and listen, listen to daddy. If I reverse it, it's really, really monstrous. It, if you listen to me and if you obey me and if you act like my son, then I'll then I'll then I'll say that you're my son. And we can't make that mistake with with our our souls and in our ministry to to make people believe that if they do x y and z then god's happy and and pleased with them or he'll stay happy and pleased and so we've got to we've got to have a grace first understanding and you know if god is sovereign and and he is and um, if what his word says is true and it is then grace is not going to disappoint Grace is not going to lead us into lawlessness. That it's going to promote a heart that says, "Man, I want to honor the Lord." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, for the for the for the for the church we were talking about earlier, who has a lot of in the works base, like show that you're saved by your works. The reality is that this week, before we gather on Sunday, we will all sin many, many times. But the salvation of God is sure, and the mercy and the forgiveness and the grace that he offers is sure. And this Sunday, we will celebrate the fact that he holds us fast, despite the fact that we will sin again. So, it's really comforting, really comforting thought. Amen. That's good. All right, friends, we hope this conversation has been incurred as in, ugh. We, all right, work, work. Mark, mark this time, Walker, so that hopefully you can uh, you can edit this later. Got if it. not, all you uh, faithful listeners can get a good laugh at my fat tongue moment. All right, friends, we hope this conversation has been an encouragement, not just for you, but for everyone today listening through the power of the internet. We look forward to seeing you next time. Have a wonderful day.